Well, I was, uh, many years ago, sharing uh, Jesus with a friend named Stephen. Uh, he was a, actually a close friend. We lived overseas together in Taiwan uh, while we were growing up, uh, but I didn't get the chance really to share the gospel with him until uh, we were adults. And uh, I was sharing Jesus with him, inviting him into the faith, and uh, his uh, response to me was one that I think will probably sound pretty familiar to you, but uh, if you take it for just one moment, it's, uh, it's an interesting response. He said, um, essentially, maybe when I'm older, maybe when I'm older, I will come into the faith. Maybe when I have a family, when I have kids, uh, I'll take faith seriously, but for now, I am uh, young and I have no use for it, no need for it at all. And though a strange objection, I think that we can all relate in some way. Uh, why? Because it's very common, it's a very common human experience to defer our greatest hopes for the future rather than really taking hold of them now, to defer uh, our present-day hopes to the future. We think I'll be a little bit more serious in my studies when I get to college. I'll uh, work a little harder after I get the promotion. Uh, I'll stop looking at pornography when I get married. I'll be more disciplined just in my daily rhythms when I have children. I will give more of my time and money when I am more established. And, and there's a really insidious lie that's kind of buried in the midst of like uh, taking your present day hopes and like putting them off to the future. And it's this, uh, the, the, the insidious lie is that you will have more willpower to change things in the future after you've made a habit of sin, which doesn't make any sense. If you decide to go ahead and poison the well today, the idea that you will be able to extract that poison in the future just has to be on its face a lie. But, but uh, however much a lie, that's not really the problem that we have. The problem is a deep heart problem. It's not that you can't uh, modify your behavior in the future. There's some of us that actually have a great deal of discipline and, and might even be able to change our behavior in the future. So it's not a matter of like uh, maybe deferring your hopes and then being able to actually in some superficial way accomplish those things in the future. It, it's not that. The problem, a deep heartfelt problem, is that you are demonstrating indifference to the thing that you are saying is good. So you're saying that uh, it would be good today, but you really don't care if you like really take hold of that today. I'll, I'll use the same examples. I, uh, it would be good for me to be a better student now, uh, but I'm actually indifferent to the truth that I could be learning right now. It would be good for me to kill my lustfulness, but I'm uh, actually indifferent to the poison of lust and its effects on me now. It would be good for me to be generous, but I'm indifferent about my selfishness and its effects now. You see, Stephen, my friend, his problem wasn't that he didn't want to modify his behavior or become more moral. In fact, his problem at its heart wasn't even that he didn't want to yield his sin to Jesus and be saved at a more fundamental level. His problem was that he was indifferent about the glory of God. He didn't care. He, he thought that maybe Christianity and the adoption of it would mess up things right now and that maybe it'd be good as a moral system later, but in that moment, it was actually that he was just indifferent about the glory of God. He didn't care about it. It wasn't something that struck him in that moment. 
I think that this is where we find God's people in the book of Haggai. And not not just uh, those people back then, it's where we find uh, sleepy. It's where we find uh, lukewarm, hesitant Christians even today. And that indifference is really just a matter of priority. If we're indifferent in our faith, we have to decide what is important, what's most important, the priority of it. And so here's what we find in these 11 verses this morning. What we find is the right priority. We find the right priority. And that priority is that God says our priority is worship. God says our priority is worship. And he's going to uh, allow us to kind of understand that priority is worship uh, by way of understanding three things. First, Israel's temple. You hear a lot of temple language. You're getting, we're going to talk a little bit about what the whole book of uh, Haggai is about in the context of Israel's temple. The second thing that we've got to understand this morning to understand that uh, worship is our priority is that Jesus is a temple. So Israel's temple, Jesus as a temple. And then thirdly, what we're going to uh, kind of apply it as is the church is a temple. So God says that our priority is worship, and we're going to discover that by understanding Israel's temple, Jesus as a temple, and the church as a temple. But just by way of some context for us, because it's hard to just drop into the Old Testament. There's, I mean, the Old Testament literally covers thousands of years, and so uh, for some of us, I mean, you go to, you hear Haggai, and you go, I, I know that, that one's kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, and we kind of go, yeah, okay, so it's probably a minor prophet, and you'd be right, but if you wanted to know anything about the book, you need to know a little bit of history. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, uh, essentially operated underneath two things. God said, if you obey me, if you operate as my people, if you glorify me, I will bless you. You'll be in uh, my place. You'll be my people. You'll experience my blessing. But if you don't do that, if you're not obedient, then I will curse you. I will send you away. You will not be uh, in my place. You will not have the temple Okay, so this uh, came to fruition in uh, 1586 B.C. So this is long before Jesus. This is uh, many generations before Jesus. The Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. Babylon was this big empire. And when they sacked Jerusalem, they did something really specific. They wanted to destroy the Israelites. And so what they decided was is that they would destroy its center of worship. So they literally destroyed the temple. There was nothing left of it. There was just uh, maybe a few parts of its foundation that were still there, but no stone laid on top of another. It was completely destroyed. And and for us to kind of try to understand that as like how meaningful that would have been, I I mean, you have to start thinking about like the monuments of like Western society and thinking about something like that being destroyed. You you may not have been impacted by uh, the fire at Notre Dame, but uh, the the fire at Notre Dame uh, Cathedral was something that actually, I'm not a Catholic, and it meant a lot to me because that cathedral had existed for centuries. Our brothers and sisters in Christ had worshipped there. It it was, in some ways, uh, an icon standing for uh, what Christendom had been on that continent, and to see it in flames really was pretty affecting. But that's nowhere near as significant as the Israelites seeing the rubble laid bare as they were carried off to Babylon. 
It was a big, big deal. Their center of worship, the place of the presence of God with them was destroyed. So the Babylonians uh, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took many of the Jews, not all, but many of the Jews to Babylon. And about 50 years later, after the Jews had been in Babylon for 50 years, uh, Cyrus, the, uh, uh, the Persian, came and took Babylon. He actually came in and ruled out. So the Babylonians were an empire. The Persians come in and defeat them. And it wasn't like this big, warring kind of thing. The people that were there in Babylon had grown very weary. There were lots of exiles that had been brought from other parts of the world, not just Jews. And they had not been allowed to worship. They had not been allowed to take on and exhibit their customs and traditions. And so when the Persians knocked on the door, it was relatively easy for the Persians to come in and take everything over. Now, the Persians were not a godly group of people, but they were very cunning. They realized that if they wanted to rule over a large group of people, they probably shouldn't leave this very diverse group of people there in the old capital. And so what they did was they allowed people to return to their home. And they even financed them with the ability to do that. So Cyrus, uh, by way of just um, decree, sends all of the exiles back to where they came from. So then in uh, 538 B.C., Sirius allows the Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild their temple and not only allows them to do it, he actually sends them with money and supplies to get it done. We're, we're actually, we have pretty good records of the Persian Empire, and we're actually told that Cyrus uh, actually gave them the wood that they would need to be able to rebuild the temple. So against all odds... God's sovereignty over this Persian king allowed his people to return to his place, fulfilling his prophecies through the prophet Jeremiah and the book of Ezra. And what we need to understand is Israel's temple and the significance of it. We need to understand Israel's temple. Look at verse 2 with me. These people, God says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they get back to God's uh, place and as God's people and to do God's things. And uh, the Lord speaks by way of this prophet Haggai and says, you think it's not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, immediately we know that God's people might be in his place and fulfilling even the prophet Jeremiah's prophecies in Ezra uh, chapter one, verse one. But there is no temple and, and God gets really specific about this through his prophet Haggai. It tells us a couple of like mile markers here. It says, in the second year of King Darius. Now, if Darius doesn't sound like a Jewish name to you, that's because it's not. It's not a Jewish name. So God's people are not being ruled by themselves. They are still under Persian, the Persian Empire, and Darius, king, uh, Darius the king was set up to kind of rule over them. But then it gets even more specific. It says the first day of the sixth month. T take this in. We don't know the precise day that our King Jesus was born, but we actually know the exact day that the word of the Lord came to Haggai. We know the exact day that like, the Jews were sent back to Jerusalem. We know a lot about the specifics, even through secular resources, about what they were sent back with. So what do we, what do we learn here? We learn that God 
is rebuking his people through Haggai, the prophet. He receives the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. That's going to be repeated throughout the book of Haggai. So this wasn't just somebody's good idea. This was the word of the Lord. And that's why this morning, uh, the thesis of the entire morning is that God says our priority is worship. God says it. It's not me that says it. It's not some old guy that wrote these things down a long time ago. God says these things. Haggai the prophet receives the word of the Lord. This statement is repeated and repeated and repeated. We'll make much of it in the weeks to come. But it says this, the the second year of King Darius in the sixth month on the first day, now that would have been August 29th, roughly, uh, for uh, uh, 520 B.C., and, and I'm not expecting you to do the math, but if you do the math on when they were sent back, and this day that the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, that's 18 years after they returned to Jerusalem. Are you starting to see the problem here? Are you starting to get why it is that God might be raising his voice and talking to his people? 18 years have gone by, and the Jews have not seen fit to rebuild his house. That's what he's saying. For the Jews, the temple was the center of worship. This was the house of prayer. This was where the psalms were sung and the entire city would be baptized in the words of these psalms that were written down by the psalmists. The temple was the place for sacrifices. This was a significant thing that they had not rebuilt it. Even more than that, we know something about the Holy of Holies. We know that the presence of the Lord was in the temple. So that means that their decision not to rebuild the temple meant that they were literally not in the presence of God, that they were not taking on the blessings of the presence of God. They had chosen not to rebuild the temple, and it was a really big deal to God. These returned exiles had probably heard throughout their youth about the splendor of Solomon's temple. And so we've got to ask the question, why didn't they rebuild it? God says that they were thinking that the time had not yet come. So maybe they were thinking, man, it's just going to be a lot of work. We want to do it right. We don't have the time or the resources or the patience. We've gotten back to this place and we need to rebuild an economy. It even talks here in a moment about bags with holes in it. You get the idea that inflation was actually overrunning God's people, that they were barely able to afford the things that they needed for life. It would have been very easy to make the decision to delay. We want to do a good job. We want to honor God. You could probably even neaten it up with some spiritual language, but they had not rebuilt the place of worship. And it was a big, big deal. Verse 4, look at with me. It is time for you, I love this, God is a little sarcastic with them, I think. Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now here's what I can't prove. And what I didn't see in any of the commentaries, but here's, here's what I get from reading this text. Pay attention to this. He says to them, go up in the hills and bring the wood. What did I tell you earlier? We know that they were sent with wood. And now God is talking about the paneling on their houses. 
I don't know this, but I would submit to you this morning that it is very likely, very possible, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you would not be surprised to find out that God's people had taken the very wood that they should have been rebuilding the temple with, and they had been making their houses luxurious. They had been paneling them. They had been uh, sealing them in. They had been spending their time and their effort and placing their hopes and their joys in their homes rather than God's house. This is a big, big deal. It's a really big deal. So God shows up and says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Verses 5 and 6 together say this, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. That sounds so authoritative, but also personable. You can almost imagine somebody like uh, putting their arm around you and saying, hey, listen, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing here. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you will never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into uh, a bag with holes. Consider your ways. You're working really hard. You've sown much and harvested little. You've uh, eaten, but you just don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled up. You clothe yourself, but you're not warm, and you take your wages, and they're deteriorating in value. This is a picture of frustration and discomfort and dissatisfaction and lack of blessing. Why? Why are God's people not being blessed? Is it purely in material senses, or is it in spiritual ways as well? Verses 9 through 11 say this and just heap on. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? That's the question that we're asking. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with building his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. And the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all, all their labors. You could be forgiven reading that, hearing God essentially saying, since you're not doing what I want you to do, I'm going to be withholding. I'm going to keep things from you, and you might be Actually, in some ways, forgive him for going like, man, that seems really petty. But God knows what his people need. God knows the things that are going to motivate them to go and build his house. Why is it that they are experiencing this lack of blessing? He tells us, my house lies in ruin while each of you busies himself with his own house. But, but I thought that we said that uh, this was a heart issue, not behavior issue. What is his, Israel being indifferent about? We use that word several times, being indifferent about. I think that we get the answer to that question in verse 8, and it's in one word there at the end of verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that is the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. 
You see, Israel's problem was the same problem that Stephen's problem was, back that I was telling you about in the intro. It's the same problem that I have. It's the same problem that we have. We are indifferent about the glory of God. God's people were not building God's house because they were indifferent about his glory. You see, Solomon's temple may have been beautiful, but it was most significant not because of how beautiful it was, but because of the worship inside. God's people were indifferent about God's glory, so they did not prioritize their worship. It wasn't about the construction of a temple or the quality of a temple. It was the worship in the temple that God was disappointed about. It would be easy to say then, consider your ways. It would be easy for me as a pastor to stand up here and say, hey, city church, consider your ways. Come to church. Be a part of a discipleship group. Disciple one another. It'd be really easy application to make that the primary, primary thrust of this message. But that's not God's message. Maybe you're entering this building, but the worship in your heart is indifferent. It's cold. It's left in ruin, just like the temple. I wonder if any of us are coming in and attending and singing And you don't necessarily need to be charged to come and do those things, but you feel a coldness in your heart. You feel an indifference towards the glory of God. I pray that that's not uh, all of our experiences, but I know that it's some. I know that it's mine from time to time, an indifference to the glory of God, leading to just seasons of coolness and coldness in a spiritual life. And what I can tell you is this morning, Our church is seeking a revival of joyful worship. That's what we're on about. So do you see the connection here? That's why we're in Haggai. I'm, I'm wanting to see a revival of joyful worship. Our elder team is wanting to see a revival of joyful worship. Our people together are wanting to see a revival of joyful worship. So we're going to the book of Haggai to learn about the priority of worship and the power of worship. Come over the next five weeks and let us learn together about worship and how it relates to the priority of God's glory. What must we do if our worship is languid? What can we do to go into those hills and gather wood? We've sought to understand Israel's temple. Now what I want us to do is consider Jesus as temple. Jesus as temple. The rest of Haggai is about the first steps of rebuilding the temple. But what we actually know from history is that they rebuilt it in stages before Christ. That it took a long time to rebuild. This uh, was 400 years before Jesus. So 400 years later, the temple that Jesus would have gone into would have been magnificent again. The people here in this day we're going to find do actually rebuild the temple. And then it gets a remodel and a refresh and a rebuild and gets up three times, I believe. The temple gets built out and expanded. By the time that Jesus gets here, it's a beautiful temple. So is the problem the temple when Jesus gets there? It's magnificent again. 
we'd be tempted to think of Jesus' time as God's people and God's place with God's temple and everything's right, right? If we read Haggai focused on the temple as a building, we will miss the point. What I want to do real quick, and you can turn with me, is to go over to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to hear Jesus himself describe himself as a temple, and we're going to see why he does it. And it's because he has a broken heart, just the way that God the Father had a broken heart, that they had not rebuilt the temple. Join me in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. It says this. And when he, that's Jesus, drew near and saw the city, this is on his final journey into Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's why he's headed to Jerusalem. When he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemy will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So then Jesus, for the second time, enters the temple. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Here's what happens with Jesus. Jesus isn't born 400 years before when the temple was unbuilt, but he was there seeing that the temple was not a place of prayer. And he, he looks at Jerusalem and he says, would that you knew the things that made for peace, but you don't. And so enemies are going to come in, they're going to surround you, they're going to set up barricades around you, they're going to tear you and your children and the temple down to the ground. There will not be one stone left on another stone. That's how jealous Jesus was for the worship of his father. And then he goes into the temple, and for the second time he goes, you guys again? I thought I took up a whip and got all of you guys out of here. What are you doing back in here? He clears the temple again, throwing over the money changers' tables. Why? Because his house is a house of prayer. It's a house of worship, not a house of covetousness, and commerce. Jesus is jealous for worship. Why? Why was he saying this? Because you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't know that the real temple was here. What we need to know, church, is that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place of worship. How do I know this? Because the gospel is that our prophet, not Haggai, but our true capital P prophet, Jesus, weeps over not just Israel's indifference, but weeps over our indifference to worship. And he drives out the things that defile it. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he came here for. He weeps over our indifference to the glory of God, and he drives out sin. 
He takes those sin on himself. He removes them from you as far as the east is from the west so that you can prioritize right worship, so that you can be a worshiper of God the Father. So for the second time, Jesus cleanses the temple of traitors and money changers, and he teaches them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. That last week of his life, he was teaching daily in the temple. What did he choose to use like his last minutes for? Teaching every day in the temple. But what was he teaching in the temple? What was he there to tell people that he was there to do? You you see, the first time when he was in the temple, what he actually did was he picked up a whip. This time we don't see the whip. We just see him turning over tables again. The first time he ran everybody out with a whip. And, And then after his resurrection, his disciples remembered something that he said. They they remember that Jesus told them the first time that he ran people out of the temple that there was a sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? All of the people were angry because uh, he had tipped over the table and he had whipped them. Essentially what they were saying when he did that is that uh, he was a real prophet and that he was there to cleanse the temple. And they say, if you're a real prophet, show us a sign or we're going to stone you to death. And what the disciples remembered is the zeal for the house that would consume Jesus. That's what he told them. John chapter 2 says this. Jesus responded to them, I'm not going to give you a sign that you're looking for. I'm not going to do a miracle. You've heard about my miracles. John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus says this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised up from the dead, the disciples remembered what he had said and believed. I wonder this morning if anyone is indifferent to the glory of God. Anybody in this room? I wonder if anybody is languishing in their worship, is in a cool season, is is not focused in on the glory of God, is not devoted to the glory of God, is not worshiping in their hearts. I wonder if you are like the Jews of Haggai's day or the Jews of Jesus's day. I wonder if anybody feels like they need a sign. What Jesus is saying is remember and believe the sign of my resurrection. His resurrection was more amazing, more wondrous, more unbelievable, more awesome in its power than rebuilding the temple. Take take this. The Jews that were standing there in front of Jesus that first time, if they had seen the temple crumble to the ground, no, no stone on another, and then Jesus had rebuilt that temple in a day, do you think that they would believe? I'll bet, I'll bet that some of them would have. That would have been pretty miraculous to see. Now consider this. Which one, really, which one's more miraculous? The tearing down of a building and the rebuilding of it in three days? Do you you know that the Israel, modern-day Israel, literally, I've heard, said, uh, set aside the materials that they would need if they ever got the chance to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount? They could do it in, like, no time at all. 
So Jesus rebuilding it in three days, pretty miraculous, pretty amazing, would have been incredible. But even human hands could do that. But he wasn't speaking about the temple. Tear this temple down, Jesus' temple. Raise it up in three days. What is he talking about? He's talking about the resurrection of his body. Which one is more wondrous? Which one's more miraculous? Which one is more inspiring that a, a temple could be built in three days or that there is resurrection? That you can be resurrected with Jesus. Which one is more powerful and amazing? Jesus is the temple. And his sign is that he was rebuilt on the third day. That he rose from the grave. That he came to life again. Showing us that death is defeatable. Showing us really that death was defeated in Jesus. If any of you is languishing in worship, Remember the sign of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus said that there is direct continuity between the Old Testament temple and himself. Once God met with his people in a temple, now God meets with us in Jesus Christ completely. How do we know that? Because he's the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the temple because in uh, the Old Testament, people would go to the temple to be near the presence of God, and yet now he has sent his divine imprint, his divine nature in the person of Jesus. He is the temple. He is the place. He is the right place of worship and glory. If you're indifferent, if you're cold about the glory of God, meet with Jesus. As we sang earlier, abide in Jesus. Revelation 21 verse 22 goes a step farther than this. If you really want to know that Jesus is the temple, if you're thinking, man, I feel like you're playing with the words a little bit there. I wonder about the sign. John sees this in Revelation chapter 21 verse 22. John sees the new Jerusalem the new heavens, the new earth, descend down out of the sky. And what does he say? He describes it. Go and read it. It's a wondrous thing. He said, and I saw no temple in the city. I saw no temple in the city. But people need a temple. Why isn't there a temple in heaven? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus is the temple. You need to know that if you are in Jesus, no temple building work awaits you in heaven. No sacrifice needs to be made in heaven. No veil will separate you in heaven. You have access to the true temple of Jesus. Do you know that one day you will not have to journey in heaven this way or that or move into a building in order to see Jesus. Jesus is the light at the center of the city and there is no darkness in the entire city. You're going to be with Jesus one day. Like, be able to see Jesus. You will be able to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I mean, just what a day. We will see Jesus with our own eyes. We will be with him as his people. And he will be to us our God. It's not that there's no temple. It's that Jesus is the right place for our worship. He is deserving of all glory. So if there's no temple building work that awaits us in heaven, what about now? 
if the gospel is really going to take root, if this truth that we are talking about this morning is going to have any effect on us, not in heaven one day, as we wonder in all of amazement about what that day is going to be like, we have to ask the question, what about now, right now, today? What if I want glory today? What if I want to experience not indifference, but blessing today? What if I want to worship today? That's when we've got to understand that though there's nothing to do now in order to go into the presence of Jesus forever, we've got to understand that it is not just Israel's temple, it is not just Jesus as temple, the church is also a temple. You remember the frustrations of God's people in verses 5 and 6, 9 through 11, do you remember them? Essentially, what they were saying is, we're working really hard and we're not getting anything out of it. I'm still depressed. I'm working really hard and I still can't provide for my family. I'm planting seeds in the ground and the stuff that's coming back for me, it's just not enough. Maybe you're in that season that we've been talking about all along and it's left you frustrated, it's left you cold. For now, the Lord says, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. Has that let you distraught and depressed? Maybe life isn't quite what you imagined it. Maybe you perceive the plenty of others on the other side of that Instagram screen and it leaves you just feeling a shell of a person. They had that vacation and I don't. Their kids are perfect and mine are a mess. I'm depressed. Life just isn't what I thought it would be. May I suggest to you something? Maybe you've become indifferent about the glory of God and you've focused on your house rather than his glory. Maybe Haggai isn't as much about God's people and God's place with God's temple back then as it is about us finding our place in Jesus today and glorifying him with all that we have. Don't get me wrong. It's about those things. We still have to hold on to those things. We have to understand Haggai the way that it was written. But I want to earnestly call you not to be indifferent about the glory of God. Just the same way that Haggai was calling God's people not to be indifferent about his glory. Maybe you've been indifferent about God's glory and you focused on your house. So what are we to do? Where in life may we find satisfying work? Where can we find bags without holes in it? Where can we find fruitful labor? When God calls the Jewish people to go into the hills and to bring back wood and build his house, that he may take pleasure and that he may appear in his glory. One last time. Both then and now, the real problem is not neglecting the building. It's not neglecting the temple. It's indifference to his glory. So how, how might we build to glorify God? What must we do to build for his pleasure? The Old Testament temple exists for the glory of God, for his worship. Today, the church exists for the glory of God and his worship. Here... Okay, I want to, I just want to, I'm the pastor, right? I got to advocate for our church. But really what I want you to know and understand is that I'm advocating for your soul. If you're listless, if you're depressed, 
if you feel like you just keep on putting your hand to the plow and you just can't get ahead, what I can tell you is there is harder work for you in the church, the church as God's temple, but oh man, it is fruitful. Oh man, do you feel like you are glorifying God? Have you ever had like relationships at work that are just, they're easier than the people at church, but you, you go out for drinks and everything and you get done and you're like, man, that was a good time only to feel lonely at night. But then you go out and you're in your discipleship group and man, it is a struggle. It is hard because people are messy and people are talking about their marriages and their kids in ways that you're just like, man, this is, this is hard to struggle, but there's still a sense of satisfaction. I don't think that that's on accident. I think that what God is saying is, put your hand to the plow for my glory and my people, this temple. The Old Testament temple existed for the glory of God in the same way that the church still exists for the glory of God. Ephesians 1, if you want to read it sometime, tells us that the church, God's people, and God's place exists for his glory and pleasure. If you're indifferent to her spiritual building up, if you're indifferent to growing the body of Christ, if you're indifferent to the church and the prosperity of God's mission, that's a failure to love God's glory. John Piper says this, and I'm going to kind of land here. Piper says that the sour fruit of this failure the sour fruit of this failure, love of the Lord's glory through uh, his church, sour fruit of this failure is a life of chronic frustration. But he who loses his life for the glory of God and the good of his church will find life deep and fulfilling. So I just want to ask you to think about a question real fast. Can you serve and love God's present-day temple, the church? Can you put your hand to work? Can you lay stone on stone? Can you ask the question, uh, not of pastors necessarily, but in your own heart, uh, God, in what way have you gifted me to be building up the temple? In what way can I glorify you by serving your people? How can I love you more and give you more glory and be less indifferent about you by loving your people and listening to him? Drawing in to a local body of believers, serving a local body of believers, building her up, washing her in the water of word so that God may receive glory and so that you can be not indifferent but bought in on the thing that God loves dearly, his church. Prioritize worship. Prioritize God's glory through worship. Don't prioritize temporal temples. God says, God says, God says that our priority is worship. Devote your life to the building up of the body of Christ, to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. God and Father, you say that worship is our priority. Lord, that it's not just an obligation, but that it is a joy. Lord, there will come a day where we are with you in heaven and there is no temple because Jesus is the temple, because we get direct access to you. We don't have to go behind some veil. We don't have to make some sacrifice. That We don't have to do some good work. 
Lord, you are majestic and glorious. Let us see it. As a body, let us see it. And let us be changed in our hearts, not to be indifferent anymore, but to glorify you with all that we do. Lord, I pray that City Church would be a place of loving affection, desire of glory, health and healing as a body. Lord, you are great and glorious. We ask that uh, your word this morning would lay powerfully on our hearts and that we would be changed forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.